Welcome to Jory's Blue Talk podcast and radio show, the radio show that makes talk wish it wasn't. This is your host, Jory Rowe, and I'm glad you tuned in to listen to Jory's Blue Talk podcast and radio show, streaming live and archived on the internet, and Spotify Music. So, where are we at today? We're going to be talking about Robert James Fisher, world-renowned chess player, today on the show, and... Hopefully we have enough information to go a whole half an hour. But if we have an abundance of information, we might go past the half hour. So let's get started on today's show and topic about Bobby Fischer, world-renowned chess player. Because he was an American chess grandmaster and the 11th world chess champion, a chess prodigy. At age 14, he won the 1958 U.S. Championship in chess. In 1964, he won the same tournament with a perfect score, 11 wins. Qualifying for the 1972 World Championship, Fisher swept matches with Mark Tamanov and Bent Larson by 6-0 scores. After another qualifying match against Tigran Petrosian, Fisher won the title match against Boris Spassky of the USSR at the time in Rezhnevich, Iceland. Publicized as a Cold War confrontation between the U.S. and the USSR, the match attracted more worldwide interest than any chess championship ever before. So his full name is Robert James Fisher, country the United States Iceland from 2005, because I believe he damned his country. Not too sure on that. But he was born March 9th, 1943 in Chicago, Illinois, the U.S., and he died January 17th, 2008, age 64 in Reznovic Island, or Iceland, I should say. He was the Grandmaster of Chess in 1958 and the World Champion from 72 to 75. His peak rating was 2,785 July of 1972, and number one peak ranking was number one in July of 1971. How about that? In 1975, more or less the year I was born, Fisher refused to defend his title when an agreement could not be reached with the FIDE, Chess's international governing body, over the match conditions but as a result, the Soviet challenger Antonoli Karpov was named world champion by default. Fisher subsequently disappeared from the public eye through occasional reports of erratic behavior that had emerged with him. In 1992, he reemerged to win an unofficial rematch against Spassky. It was held in Yugoslavia, which was under a United Nations embargo at the time. His participation led to a conflict with the U.S. government, which warned Fisher that his participation in the match would violate the executive order imposing U.S. sanctions on Yugoslavia. The U.S. government ultimately issued a warrant for his arrest. <clears throat> After that, Fisher lived as an amagra. Oh, whatever that word is. In 2004, he was arrested in Japan and held for several months for using a passport that the U.S. government had revoked. 
Eventually, he was granted an Icelandic passport and citizenship by a special act of the Icelandic Athelings, allowing him to live there until his death in 2008. Fisher made numerous lasting contributions to chess. His book, My 60 Memorial Memorable Games, published in 1969, is regarded as essential reading in chess literature. In the 1990s, he patented a modified chess timing system that added a time increment after each move, now a standard practice in the top tournament and match play. He also invented Fisher Random Chess, also known as Chess 960, a chess variant in which the initial position of the pieces is randomized to one of 960 possible positions. That would just make the game that much more complicated, because to be quite honest with you, while Bobby Fisher is a chess prodigy, I was by all means nothing in the game of chess. <laughs> I think I was put in ch checkmate by in, in, in just two moves. Now that's bizarre, and to put somebody in checkmate in just two moves. How, I don't know, but he did. My younger half-brother did, that is. But Fisher made numerous atomistic statements and denied the Holocaust. His atheism, professed since at the least the 1960s, was a major theme in his public and private remarks. There had been widespread comment and speculation concerning his psychological condition based on his extreme views and unusual behavior. Now we're going to go into talking about the early years of Bobby Fischer. He was born at Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago, Illinois on March 9, 1943. His mother, Regina Wender, when, yeah, I'm right, Wender Fischer was a U.S. citizen. Born in Switzerland, her parents were Polish Jews. Raised in St. Louis, Missouri, Regina became a teacher, a registered nurse, and later a physician. How about that? After graduating from college in her teens, Regina traveled to Germany to visit her brother. It was there she met geneticist and future Nobel Prize winner Hermann Joseph Moller, who persuaded her to move to Moscow to study medicine. She enrolled at I.M. Senechevov, first Moscow State Medical University, where she met Hans Gerhardt Fischer, also known as Gerardo Liebscher, a German biophysicist whom she married in November of 1933. In 1938, Hans Gerhardt and Regina had a daughter, Joan Fischer. The reemergence of anti-Semitism under the Stalin prompted Regina to go with Joan to Paris, where Regina became an English teacher. The threat of a German invasion led her and Joan to go to the United States in 1939. Regina and Hans Gebhardt had already separated in Moscow, although they did not officially divorce until 1945. At the time of her son's birth, Regina was homeless and shuttled to different jobs and schools around the country to support her family. She gauged in political activism and raised both Bobby and Joan as a single parent. In 1949, 
Regina moved the family to Manhattan and the following year to Brooklyn, New York City, where she studied her master's degree in nursing and subsequently began working in that field. Now let's talk about Fisher's father. Paul Nemenini, in 2002, Peter Nicholas and Cleve Benson of the Philadelphia Inquirer published an investigative re report which stated that Bobby Fisher's biological father was actually Paul Nemenini. What a name. This was not confirmed by Fisher or his by-then-deceased mother. Nemenini a Hungarian mathematician and physicist of Jewish heritage, was considered an expert in fluid and applied mechanics. Benson and Nicholas continued their work and gathered additional evidence in court records, personal interviews, and even a summary of the FBI investigation written by J. Edgar Hoover, which confirmed their earlier conclusions. Throughout the 1950s, the FBI investigated Regina and her circle due to her supported communist views and due to her time leave, living in Moscow. FBI files note that Hans Gerhardt Fisher never entered the United States while recording that Nemini took a keen interest in Fisher's upbringing. Not only were Regina and Nemenini reported to have had an affair in 1942, but Nemenini made monthly child support payments to Regina and paid for Bobby's schooling till his own death in 1952. Peter Nemenini was reported to have told friends around him that Fisher was his half-brother while engaging in efforts to help Fisher after Paul had died in 1952. Now we're going to talk about his chest beginnings, what made Bobby Fisher who he is. In March of 1949, six-year-old Bobby and his sister Joan learned how to play chess using the instructions from a set bought at a candy store. When Joan lost interest in chess and Regina did not have the time to play, Fisher was left to play many of his first games against himself. Well, I didn't know that. I guess you can do that. But when the family vacationed at Patchogue, Long Island, New York that summer, Bobby found a book of old chess games and studied it intensely. In 1950, the family moved to Brooklyn, first to an apartment at the corner of Union Street and Franklin Avenue, and later to a two-bedroom apartment at 560 Lincoln Place. It was there that Fisher soon became so engrossed in the game that Regina feared he was spending too much time alone. As a result, on November 14, 1950, Regina sent a postcard to the Brooklyn Eagle newspaper seeking to place an ad inquiring whether other children of Bobby's age might be interested in playing chess with him. The paper rejected her ad because no one could figure out how to classify it, but forwarded her, her inquiry to Herman Helms, the dean of American chess, who told her that Master Max Pavey, former Scottish champion, would be giving a simultaneous exhibition on January 17, 1951. 
Fisher played in the exhibition. Although he held on for 15 minutes, drawing a crowd of onlookers, he eventually lost to the chess master. One of the spectators was Brooklyn Chess Club president Carmen Nigro, an American chess expert of the near master strength of an instructor. Nigro was so impressed with Fisher's play that he introduced him to the club and began teaching him. Fisher noted at the time of that he had with Nigro, Mr. Nigro was possibly not the best player in the world, but he was a very good teacher. Meeting him was probably a decisive factor in my going ahead with chess. Nigro hosted Fisher's first chess tournament at his home in 1952. In the summer of 1955, Fisher, then 12 years old, joined the Manhattan Chess Club, and Fisher's relationship with Nigro lasted until 1956, when Nigro moved away. Now we're going to talk about the Hawthorne Chess Club. In June of 1956, Fisher began attending the Hawthorne Chess Club based in Master Jock John Jack W. Collins' home. Collins taught chess to children and had been described as Fisher's teacher, but Collins himself suggested that he did not actually teach Fisher and that the relationship might be more accurately described as one of mentorship. Fisher played thousands of blitz and offhand games with Collins and other strong players, studied the books in Collins' large chess library, and ate almost at many dinners at Collins' home with his own. Now let's talk about this young champion a little bit more. In March of 1956, the Log Cabin Chess Club of West Orange, New Jersey, based in the home of the club's eccentric multimillionaire founder and patron, Elliot Forey Lauks. This person took Fisher on a tour to Cuba, where he gave a 12-board simultaneous exposition at Havana's Capablanca Chess Club, winning 10 games and drawing two. On this tour, the club played a series of matches against other clubs. Fisher played second board behind international master Norman Whitaker. Whitaker and Fisher were the club's leading scorers, each scoring five and a half points out of seven games. In July of 1956, Fisher won the U.S. Junior Chess Championship, scoring eight and a half out of 10 at Philadelphia to become the youngest ever junior champion at age 13. At the 1956 U.S. Open Chess Championship in Oklahoma City, he scored 8.5 to 12 to tie for fourth and eighth places with Arthur Beisiger winning. In the first Canadian Open Chess Championship in Montreal in 1956, he scored 7 out of 10 to tie for eighth and 12th places with Larry Evans winning. In November, Fisher played in the 1956 Eastern States Championship in Washington, D.C., trying for second with William Lombardi, Nicholas Rossolomimo, and Arthur Feuerstein, and Hans Berliner, taking first by a half a point. That's quite a small margin there, if you ask me. 
Fisher accepted an invitation, though, to play in the third Blessing J. Rosenwald Trophy Tournament in New York City in 1956, a premier tournament limited to the 12 players considering the best in the U.S. Playing against top opposition, the 13-year-old Fisher could only score 4.5 out of 11, tying for 8th and ninth place. He won the brilliancy prize for his game against international master Donald Byrne in which Fisher sacrificed his queen to unleash an unstoppable attack. Hans Kmach called it the game of the century, writing, The following game, a stunning masterpiece of combination play performed by a boy of 13 against a formidable opponent, matches the finest on record in the history of chess prodigies. According to Frank Brady, the game of the century had been talked about, analyzed, and admired for more than 50 years. It would probably be a part of the canon of chess for many years to come. In reflecting on the game a while after it occurred, the game of the century, Bobby was refreshingly modest. I just made the moves I thought were best. He thought, I was just lucky. In 1957, Fisher played a two-game match against former world champion Max Yu at New York, losing a half to one and a half. When the U.S. Chess Federation published its rating list in May, Fisher had the rank of master, the youngest player to earn that title up to that point. In July, he successfully defended U.S. junior title, scoring eight and a half out of nine at San Francisco. In August, he scored 10 out of 12 at the U.S. Open Chess Championship in Cleveland, winning on tie-breaking points over Arthur Bicegwire. This made Fisher the youngest ever U.S. Open champion. He won the New Jersey Open Championship, scoring 6.5 out of 7. Then he defeated the young Filipino master, Rodolfo Ton Cardasso, 6-2 in a New York match sponsored by Pepsi-Cola. we got 10 minutes left in the show before we cut it off for the end. So let's keep talking about Fisher when he wins the first U.S. title. Based on Fisher's rating and strong results, the USCF invited him to play in the 1957-58 U.S. Championship. The tournament included six-time U.S. champion Samuel Rishivensky, defending U.S. champion Arthur Bicegwire, and William Lombardi, who in August had won the World Junior Championship. Bicegwire predicted that Fisher would finish slightly over the center mark. Despite all the predictions to the contrary, Fisher scored eight wins and five draws to win the tournament by one point margarine with 10 and a half out of 13. Still two months shy of his 15th birthday, Fisher became the youngest ever U.S. champion. Since the championship that year was also the U.S. zonal champion, Fisher's victory earned him title of international master. Fisher's victory in the U.S. Championship, qualified him to participate in the 1958 Portorzo International, the next step towards challenging the world champion. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about his successful return. Actually, 
we're getting down to about eight minutes left in the show. And we're going to talk about his later life and his death. And if we have enough time later on, after we discuss this part, we'll talk about his personal life a little bit more. So let's talk about his later life and death. After the 1992 match with Spassky, Fisher, now a fugitive, slid back into relative obscurity, taking up residence in Budapest, Hungary, and allegedly having a relationship with young Hungarian chess master Zita Rzeszowski. Fisher stated that standard chess was stale and that he now played blitz games of chess variants such as Chess 960. He visited the Polger family in Budapest and analyzed many games with Judith, Suzuka, and Sofia Polgar. In 1998 and 1999, he also stayed at the house of the young Hungarian grandmaster, Peter Leko. From 2000 to 2002, Fisher lived in Buguyo in the Philippines, residing in the same compound as the Filipino grandmaster, Eugenio Tor, a close friend who had acted as a second during his 1992 match with Spassky. Tor introduced Fisher to a 22-year-old woman named Marilyn Young. On May 21, 2001, Marilyn Young gave birth to a daughter named Jinky Young and claimed that Fisher was the child's father, a claim ultimately disproven by DNA after Fisher's death. Let's see what he had to say about the September 11th attacks. Shortly after midnight on September 12, 2001, Philippines local time, approximately four hours after September 11, 2001, terrorist attacks in the U.S., Fisher was interviewed live by Pablo Mercado on the Baguio City station of Mambo Radio Network. Fisher stated that he was happy that the attacks happened while expressing his view on United States and Israel foreign policy, saying, I applaud the act. Look, nobody gets that the U.S. and Israel have been slaughtering the Palestinians for years. He also said the horrible behavior that the U.S. is committing all over the world. This just shows you that what goes around comes around, even for the United States. Fisher referenced the movie Seven Days in May and said it hoped for a military coup in the U.S., and he says he hopes that the country will be taken over by the military. They'll close down all the synagogues, arrest all the Jews, execute hundreds of thousands of Jewish ringleaders. In response to Fisher's statements about 9-11, the U.S. Chess Federation passed a motion to cancel his right to membership in the organization. Fisher's rights to become a member was reinstated in 2007. So he really pretty much shit on the country, you know, pretty bad. Let's talk briefly about his detention in Japan. Fisher lived for a time in Japan. On July 13, 2004, acting in response to a letter from U.S. officials, Japanese immigration authorities arrested him at 
Narita International Airport near Tokyo for allegedly using a revoked U.S. passport while trying to board a Japan, Japan Airlines flight to Ninoy Aquino International Airport in Manila, Philippines. Fisher resisted arrest and claimed to have sustained bruises, cuts, and a broken tooth in the process. Well, you shouldn't mess around with security at an airport. At the time, Fisher had a passport originally issued in 97 and updated in 2003 to add more pages that, according to U.S. officials, had been revoked in November of 2003 to his outstanding arrest warrant for the Yugoslavian sanctions violation. Despite outstanding arrest warrants in the U.S., Fisher said that he believed that the passport was still valid. The authorities held Fisher at a custody center for 16 days before transferring him to another facility. Fisher said that his cell was windowless and he had not seen the light of date during that period and that the staff had ignored his complaints about constant tobacco smoke in his cell. Tokyo-based Canadian journalist and consultant John Bosnich set up a committee to free Bobby Fisher after meeting Fisher at Narita Airport and offering to assist him. Boris Spassky wrote a letter to the U.S. President George W. Bush asking for mercy charity, and if that was not possible, to put him in the same cell with Bobby Fisher and give them to a chest give the two of them a chess set. It's reported that Fisher and Miyoko Watai, the president of the Japanese Chess Association, with whom he had reported been living with since 2000, wanted to become legally married. It was also reported that Fisher had been living in the Philippines with Marilyn Young during the same period. Fisher applied for German citizenship on the grounds that his father was German. Fisher stated that he wanted to renounce his U.S. citizenship and appealed to the U.S. government, or no, yeah, U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell to help him do so through that had no effect. Japan's Justice Minister rejected Fisher's request for asylum and ordered his deportation. While in prison, Bobby Fisher legally married Miyoko Watai on September 6, 2004. And I want to get to the part where it's not talking so much about his citizenship that he gained with other countries. I, I, I want to talk about his death because this is probably rather the most interesting part here. Okay. On January 17th of 2008, Fisher died at the age of 64 from kidney failure at the Lanspital Hospital, National University Hospital of Iceland in Reznovic. He had been suffering from degenerative kidney failure. He originally had urinary tract blockage, but refused surgery or medication. Magnus Sekulson reported Fisher's response to leg massages, nothing soothes as much as a human touch. On January 21st, Fisher was buried in the small Christian cemetery of these names, some kind of church outside the town of Selfloss, 60 kilometers southeast of Reznovic, after a Catholic funeral presided over Fr. Jacob, Roland, and Diocese of Reznovic. 
In accordance with the fisher's wishes, only Miyoko Watai, Gunnar's Okay. Gawar Severison and Gawar's family were present at the funeral. Fisher's estate was estimated at $140 million. It became the object of a legal battle involving claims from four parties, with Miyoko Watai ultimately inheriting what remained of Fisher's estate after government claims. The four parties were Fisher's Japanese wife, Miyoko Watai, his alleged Filipino daughter, Jinky Young, and her mother, Marilyn Young, and his two American nephews, Alexander and Nicholas Targ, and their father, Russell Targ, and the U.S. government claiming unpaid taxes. Marilyn Young claimed that Jinky was Fisher's father, citing an evidence of Jinky's birth and baptismal certificates, photographs, and a transaction record dated December 4th of 2007 of a bank remittance by Fisher to Jinky and Jinky's DNA through her blood samples. However, Magnus Sikolson and friend of Fisher said that he was certain that Fisher was not the girl's father. But now we're Running out of time for the rest of this broadcast. Uh, wish we could keep going on a little longer, like I said we would, but we're running out of information to talk about with Bobby Fisher. I'm glad you listened to me tonight and you left everybody else alone. This is Jory's Blue Talk podcast and radio show. Radio show today for being a half hour long. Glad you tuned in and listened to me and you left everyone else alone. I'll see you next time on Jory's Blue Talk podcast and radio show. Bye for now.